You're listening to a Discovery Vitality podcast. Our expert guests help you manage your fitness, health, and mental well-being. How would you describe the quality of the sleep you've been getting since the COVID-19 outbreak and the lockdown? Well, several observational epidemiologic studies have shown that inadequate sleep is associated with obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and overall poor health indicators. Improving sleep duration and sleep quality is therefore an important wellness intervention. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Dale Ray. She's a senior researcher in the Division of Exercise Science and Sports Medicine at UCT. She's also an expert in sleep science, circadian rhythms, and sleep in sport, health, and illness. Dr. Ray, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Azania. So if we could look at, start by understanding um, sleep and what our, and how our understanding has shifted over years, what can you tell us, you know, in a brief summary about what we now know about the significance of sleep and its importance to well-being? So in terms of mental health, no one will dispute that for as long as we can remember, sleep has been, or good sleep has been linked with good mental health. So I'm going to put that package of the conversation aside because that is um, it's a huge area for the moment. But when I think about sleep in terms of non-communicable diseases, it certainly is the new kid on the block. So typically when we think about how do we um, protect against NCDs, how do we reduce obesity, people think about what they're eating, you think about exercise, you think about making changes to lifestyles such as reducing uh, smoking or reducing alcohol intake, but only recently has sleep joined the fray as being a very important member of this sort of party, if you like. And I think that um, unfortunately for us in the past, we have um, numerous examples of people throughout history who boast very short sleep and very often they seem to be the productive, the the leaders, the innovators, the, the special mm. people. And it's almost like it's worn with a badge of honor. Oh, you know, I only sleep three, four hours, or this person sleeps three or four hours, so surely that's okay. And I guess another way to look at it is through the eyes of athletes. Now, I can guarantee you that there isn't a single athlete out there that is sleeping three to four hours a night. Athletes mm. have a completely different take on sleep because they know how important it is for their physical performance. And so they're obtaining seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours in a 24-hour period. And so I think that more recently, since sleep has been highlighted as being so important for our fight against non-communicable diseases and especially cardiometabolic health, I think people are finally starting to realize that sleep is something that we actually need to be taking seriously and that we need to be protecting it rather than abusing it. I just love the analogy that um, you leaned on to demonstrate that point. You know, when we think of athletes and the levels to which they need to perform and the fact that this is fueled, that it's supported, uh, it's founded on good quality sleep, just if we want to perform better, then we need better sleep quality. What a great uh, demonstration. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people... um, don't make these connections very often. And I suppose that one of the problems with sleep, this is a bit cheeky, but I view it a little bit like smoking in that you can abuse it today and feel very little in terms of consequences. And so 
for the non-athletes out there, when we speak to people about trying to look after their sleep and prioritize it, it's a little bit difficult for them to understand or engage in that conversation because they might be getting short or poor quality sleep now and they might not feel too terrible. They might think that they're surviving and they might not have any of the metabolic aberrations that have yet manifested. And unfortunately, for these kinds of things, it typically takes time. And so it's sort of what you do today that is setting you up for five or 10 years down the line. And so that's mm. very often the problem that we have when we speak to sort of non-athletes because they think, well, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't have any diseases. I'm not overweight or obese. So what are you going on about? So the way that we often try to get people to take sleep more seriously in the short term is to think about what the consequences it has on both your cognitive performance and your mental health. Hmm. So what are the functions that we perhaps don't associate with sleep? It's actually surprising how little we know about sleep. I mean, there's literally a handful of functions that we can be relatively certain of at this point in time. Um, the most important thing to understand is that without sleep, we don't survive. So mm. the experiments have been conducted quite elegantly in um, animal models, and um, we can definitely take that through to humans. The next thing to understand is that when we sleep, there's a huge housekeeping function um, in terms of removing toxins from the brain. And this has recently been, become quite a hot spot in research. So you might have heard of a um, toxin called beta amyloid, and its buildup in the brain is associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease. And so what we know about sleep today is that when we sleep, our brain volume actually reduces a little bit so that this um, lymphatic fluid can bathe the brain and allow um, removal of toxins which have built up during the daytime. And so we now know that one of the key functions of sleep is to remove toxins from the brain, such as beta amyloid, which is, as I said, associated with the development of Alzheimer's. Another very important function of sleep relates to the immune system. And this is obviously highly topical now in the time of COVID-19. Yes. So, if we were to oversimplify it, just so that we can understand it, our immune system has two main components to it, the innate and the adaptive components. And for the most part, our innate immune system is highly functional during the daytime. And that part of our immune system defends us against inhaled or ingested or absorbed pathogens. And that makes sense because we're out and about in the daytime, even when we're practicing social distance, distancing, and we're exposed to many more pathogens. At nighttime, however, our adaptive part of our immune system becomes highly active. And that's the part of our immune system which de um, develops the antibodies to fight against the pathogens, for example, to which we've been exposed. It's also important in removing cells that have uh, mutated during the day and that are likely to become cancerous down the line. So it's got an incredibly important function in terms of um, immunity. And my way of viewing it is, is that if you reduce your sleep opportunity, you are probably quite unfairly placing quite a big demand on your immune system to keep you healthy in a shorter space of time. Yeah. And then the other thing that is well established with regards to sleep is that it's a time where we lay down in bed or entrench memories. Um, so that's, that's certainly important for, uh, for us to be functioning well during the daytime. And we also um, enhance various neural networks, which might be involved in memory and understanding and learning, but also can be involved in the physical tasks that we do. 
So thinking about a person learning to serve tennis, for example, or a toddler learning to walk, those require certain neural pathways um, in the brain in order to make those activities happen. And that gets entrenched during the, the night as well. Wow. Um, so Dr. Ray, what are some of the things that contribute to poor sleep, sleep hygiene, as we commonly hear the term? We have a very, very strong circadian system within our body, which allows us to function on a 24-hour cycle, sleep-wake cycle, which is important because our daylight cycle is 24 hours. And therefore, we're very primed to be active um, when the, the, the sun is up, essentially, and to rest and be peaceful when the sun is down. So in an ideal world, we would sort of rise more or less with the sun. We would do all of our eating, physical activity, moving around, thinking, whatever we need to do in the daytime. And we would reserve nighttime for fasting and for resting and for relaxing and re rejuvenating, regenerating. But what typically is happening now is thanks to um, artificial light at night, we're able to extend our daytime period quite dramatically so that we have a lot of ex excess light after sunset. And that has two consequences. It um, inadvertently shortens our sleep opportunity because our bedtime is pushed later. In part, that's because we might be distracted by our devices or whatever it is that we're doing at the end of the day. And in part, that's happening because the light, which is coming from our overhead lighting in our homes, in our offices, from the light emitted from our screens and devices, it's actually suppressing a hormone called melatonin. And melatonin gets secreted once the levels of light goes down, so it's really shortly after sunset. And that signals to our body that it's time to switch to night phase or um, sleep time. And so possibly the biggest thing that's happening now is people are interfering with their natural sleep-wake activity pattern by having excess light exposure at the end of the day. So that's the big, big culprit. Um, if we could talk about insomnia for a minute, I see that research suggests that one in three adults finds it difficult to fall asleep or stay asleep, and around half of those sleep so badly that they have problems functioning during the day, as you referenced earlier on. There are those cases where there is a diagnosis of insomnia, um, and the fact that this is increasingly becoming a, a public health problem, what can we do? What, what, what are the steps that we can start to take to make sure that we put ourselves in a better position to get quality sleep, especially when you think of these extreme cases where there's insomnia or is insomnia uh, hospitalization? <laughs> insomnia is a minefield. Um, I mean, as you've uh, alluded to, it's, it's a very common um, sleep problem. And in fact, it is the most common sleep disorder um, mm. around. I think that it, practically every single person would have experienced at some point or another a night of insomnia, if not a string of nights, if not something that's longer term, which is um, a little bit more concerning. The thing with insomnia is more and more it's actually being viewed as a symptom rather than an actual sort of disorder itself. I see. Because things that we do through behavior or things that happen within our body relating to hormones or a number of other things can actually have the symptom of making sleep difficult to attain. Mm. So the first thing always is to try and root out what the cause of the sleeping issues are. Because in order to deal with insomnia, 
one has to be able to eliminate, if possible, the cause which is creating the insomnia type problems. Um, that is much easier said than done. And very often the cause is not obvious or it's so deeply buried in the past that it's practically inaccessible. But the theory goes that, that one needs to look for that. So if it's a short-term problem and you know, okay, this sleeping problem is because a person is terribly stressed because they've just been retrenched and now they're worried about finances, well, we've got something to work with there in terms of dealing with the anxiety and the stress, which are certainly the, some of the biggest culprits of poor sleep. One, of course, needs to rule out any underlying physical conditions which might contribute to insomnia, any hormonal imbalances, etc. Um, most people, when they experience acute insomnia, will generally um, find that the cause is anxiety or stress-related. And that's mm -hmm. something that probably most of us can relate to. And um, you might relate mm -hmm. to either waking up at somewhere between one and three in the morning. That's a very common. <laughs> that's a very common, yeah. <laughs> and you have a spinning racing mind. And if you pay attention, you might notice that your heart rate is up a little bit. Your body temperature might be up. And all of that is indicative of a person being in a slightly um, hyper aroused state. So a little bit too much fight and flight happening. And that's mm. often linked to worry, concern, anxiety. And you'll find that you sort of start to process a whole lot of things in your mind there that might be um, brewing below your, you didn't quite realize that they were there subconsciously. And yeah. so dealing with those kinds of things is really the key. Um, and as you um, well know, very often the primary form of treatment would be something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And that's helping to adjust a person's um, thinking and attitudes, beliefs, and, and actions around sleep to try to um, retrain a new sleep habit in which sleep is, is consistent and consolidated. So that's currently the gold standard method for dealing with insomnia. But as I've mentioned, prior to going into something like cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, one really needs to do the digging around to try mm -hmm. to figure out exactly what's causing the symptoms. The fact that you touch on this 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. disruption in our sleep, it is so, so common. And one of the biggest frustrations, I think, when you fall asleep, sometimes you think, please don't let me wake up at 3. I just want to sleep <laughs> through to the morning. Uh, because after that, next thing you fall asleep and next thing it's time to, to get up in the morning can be a huge source of irritation. So what do we do? Do we wake up? Um, go to the bathroom maybe uh, or do we lie there and pray that the sleep returns what's your advice for that window of frustration <laughs> that's such a tricky one um so i kind of have two point two perspectives on this if it's mm. a one-off let's say you've been sleeping fine there haven't been any issues you suddenly have a one-off night where you notice that you're awake and you can't get back to sleep in that scenario I would really just chill out, not get up if you don't need to, not put on the light, not start to read, get, please yeah. don't get onto your phone. Um, you're basically just going to reinforce to yourself that you are safe, you are warm, you are well, um, you are resting and relaxing and sleep will come. Um, and very often it can take an hour or even two and it's frustrating because as you mentioned, by the time you fall asleep, you feel like you're crashing into your alarm clock to wake up again in a matter of minutes. Um, 
If, however, you have a longer-term sleep problem and that's happening on a regular basis, I would first look at what's going on in your head when that's happening. And if there are worry thoughts or things that you can deal with, those actually need to be dealt with in the daytime. Because what's essentially happening is that when we sleep, we really let our guard down. And so everything that's sort of sitting below our level of consciousness in our subconscious gets to bubble and brew. And we do a lot of our sorting out of feelings and emotions during sleep. And so they pop to the fore. And there's a natural breaking point in your sleep around halfway through your sleep where you've done a lot of your deep sleep. And when you happen to wake up then with a busy mind, your body is actually quite rested. And if your mind is allowed to go, it can be very hard to fall asleep again. Mm. Um, for some people, if you notice that you're very hot and that you're agitated, it's certainly a good idea just to get up, cool off, get a sip of water, um, go to the bathroom if that's necessary, and then come back and try and get into a new comfortable position to sleep again. Um, when it comes to a chronic sleep problem, then through the techniques of um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, um, they will certainly use sleep restriction to try to limit that amount of time that one is in bed. Because the thinking is that being in bed frustrated and not being able to sleep develops a very unhealthy attitude towards the bed. And it promotes the belief that you see, I can't sleep when I'm in this bed because this happens and that happens. And then you mm -hmm. essentially then sort of go into a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy mode. So in right. those cases, you definitely would get out of bed and go and change the environment. But that needs to be done um, in, in chronic insomnia cases and um, in the whole sort of ambit of CBTI. Mm. What do you think of, and I know that this is asking maybe an unfair question, about the world's sleep at the moment, the country's sleep at the moment, when we're dealing with so much uncertainty and these unprecedented events happening in our lifetime, and what can we do to protect our sleep in the midst of all of this turmoil that's going on in the world? When people go into these worrisome times, sleep becomes really important because it's often a way that we deal with a lot of our emotions and, and concerns. But I've noticed two things um, in this lockdown period. Um, and one of them is that people are doing a lot of extended sleep now. And they, um, I think that that's because of a different routine, not having to travel and that kind of thing. And people are actually catching up on, um, on past sleep debt. So if you're in that category and if you're noticing that you're doing a lot more sleeping now than what you usually do, it's a big sign that what you were doing in your everyday life pre-lockdown was mm. leaving you to be relatively sleep deprived. And then the other thing to notice is what's happening to your sleep rhythm. So because we have a little bit more fluidity in terms of how we might spend our day at the moment, um, even though we might be working from home, there are a lot of um, sort of different uh, factors. And it's really important to keep a good, strong sleep routine now. And so you want to be in a pattern where you try to go to sleep at the same time, wake up at the same time, sleep, sleep for a similar duration. Because what's going to happen is once we have to get back out into the real world, if we've got an erratic sleep pattern now or we've shifted into a phase of very late bedtimes and very long sleep and so we're going to have an absolutely horrific battle in reining in our sleep patterns to fit again with um, what it means for us to have to go to work or to school or to varsity once mm -hmm. lockdown is done. You've been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Ray. This was eye-opening and 
you've demonstrated so well that we need to guard our sleep quite jealously and make sure we do what we can because it's in our health interest, not just best interest, in our health interest, um, that we sleep as well as we can. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. It was lovely to chat to you, Zanya. That was Dr. Dale Ray, Senior Researcher in the Division of Exercise Science and Sports Medicine at the Department of Human Biology in the Faculty of Human Sciences at UCT, the expert on sleep science, circadian rhythms, and sleep and sport health and illness. This podcast was brought to you by Discovery Vitality. Stay healthy, stay rewarded. Visit the Discovery Vitality website for more.